Part One of Lecture Three of Six Lectures on Literature by C. H. Herford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Is there a poetic view of the world? The British Academy, Wharton Lecture on English Poetry, Seven, from the Proceedings of the British Academy, Volume Seven, London, published for the British Academy by Humphrey Milford, Oxford University Press, Amen Corner e c price two shillings net read november twenty fourth nineteen sixteen view of the world is a clumsy phrase for an idea which itself has for most of us an unattractive flavour of pedantry this latter impression is hardly removed by a knowledge of the parts which under the neater and more expressive term weltanschauung it has played in german literary study Weltanschauung is the indispensable final chapter, without which no German biography, the confidential disclosure, without which no German friendship is complete. A Weltanschauung, or world view, in its full scope, comprehends ideas about life of quite different categories. It touches metaphysics and science, ethics and aesthetics. It offers an answer to Faust's question, what is it that at bottom holds the world together but also to the practical questions what is the end of action and how we ought to act historically we know the answers to these questions occur in great part as successive steps in continuous or closely connected processes of thought but between these continuous processes yawn gulfs which no argument can bridge from bacon through hobbs to locke we can trace something like a connected development, but between Hobbes and his contemporary Burma there is a cleavage due not to bad reasoning on either side, but to a radical difference in the kind of experience from which the reasoning in the two cases set out. And the history of belief indicates that there are at least two types of elemental experience which thus generate ideas about the world, and to which two great classes of world view in essence correspond these may be distinguished as the religious and the philosophical in the first thought is dominated by the consciousness of a power or powers distinct from man controlling his fate protecting his country or his tribe determining his moral code his scheme of values and his expectations after death from the crudest fetishism and animism to the loftiest theism a living relation to such a power is the root fact from which the religious world view takes its origin and derives its character on the other hand we find a vast and complex body of conceptions of the world which do not originate in intercourse with the divine power or in the fear or hope which such a power may inspire but in the effort to give a finally and universally valid account of experience naturally neither these nor any other type of world-view if such there be are mutually exclusive in substance and content religion may reach the conclusions of philosophy and philosophy those of religion each by a path strictly its own historically the two attitudes to life have intimately interacted and if the religious type has on the whole shown less power of resistance to the penetration of ideas of the opposed type on the other hand modern philosophy in particular has often built upon and not seldom with 
ideas first begotten not by speculative curiosity but by the rapture or the agony of god-intoxicated or demon-haunted souls the eternal war of almost and achiman still echoes in the hebraic intensity of our distinction between good and evil and the visionary ecstasies of the mystics were of account in the evolution of philosophic pantheism and similarly the edifices of theology have borrowed fortifying buttresses or indispensable pillars from ideas evolved by scientific reason or a purely secular interpretation of good aristotle applied and interpreted by aquinas became one of the masters not only of those who know but of those who believe nevertheless the two types have on a comprehensive survey stood distinctly apart and their ramifications appear to dominate between them the entire field of belief and speculative thought is it possible nevertheless to distinguish a third type of world-view analogous to these in other words is there any third kind of experience distinct from that of either religion or philosophy yet involving an apprehension of reality comparable in originality and possibly in importance with theirs the present essay is based upon the view that such an experience is given in and by poetry footnote the distinction of a religious philosophic and poetic world-view is based on w dilthey das wesen der philosophia weltanschauungslehre end of footnote one for the specific experience which comes to a poet through poetry however it may be interwoven with religious or philosophic ideas has a radically different psychological origin and character it is equally intense and absorbing but it is not determined by conscious relation to an outer power and it seeks to express rather than to explain it is neither transfigured fear or hope nor yet a logical process in the making of a poem there may be even a conscious detachment from actuality and the poet may float free in a dream-world apparently without thought of the world which he inhabits the poetic may well be thought to differ from the religious or the philosophic types of experience less in inducing any specific way of contemplating reality than in liberating us from the necessity or desire to contemplate it at all yet it is certain that the poet's detachment even in his most ethereal dream-flights from reality is only apparent in all the spontaneous and seemingly arbitrary movements of his mind among its crowding ideal shapes reality through his stored-up experience is at work quietly weaving a thousand subtle filiations between the poem and the life of men at large othello is much farther from actuality than the poor novel on which its story was based but it is penetrated with the vision of life of which cinzio's tale caught so feeble and fugitive a glimpse what distinguishes poetic from religious or philosophic apprehension is not that it turns away from reality but that it lies open to and in eager watch for reality at doors and windows which with them are barred or blind the poet's soul resides so to speak in his senses in his emotions in his imagination as well as in his conscious intelligence and we may provisionally describe poetic apprehension as an intense state of consciousness 
in which all these are vitally concerned in so far as a particular outlook upon the world is founded upon a particular type of experience a poet's world-view will be radically affected by his senses emotions imagination the flower which wordsworth contemplated on the bank or by the lake and that other which tennyson with his more curious scrutiny plucked from the crannied wall could stir these poets intellect and heart to the depths and their apprehension as poets of god and man of nature of duty would have been different without it but in any case it will be said even if we grant that poetic experience tends to induce some way of regarding reality it cannot possibly induce any constant or definable way if elements of mind so infinitely diverse so individual as emotion and imagination are vitally concerned in the process that energizing of mind released from the control of actuality which we call imagination that free flowing out of trains of suggestion called up by emotion takes the colour at every step of the individual make of the poet's nature and the individual cast of his experience in so far as a world view is strictly poetic in origin the conclusion might seem hard to resist that there may be as many poetic world views as there are poets and it is true that the individual quality of the poet will always cleave to whatever is strictly poetic in his thinking but even so it may be possible to determine typical directions in which poetic apprehension tends to engender or to sway belief and to modify ideas imbibed in education or accepted on authority thus it may be provisionally laid down that a view of the world reached through poetic experience will tend to accentuate those aspects of man and nature and those ways of regarding them which offer most scope analogy or sanction to this type of experience where the senses play a vital part and are yet vitally implicated with passion and ideas there will be little disposition to doctrines which either brand the senses as evil or illusory or erect them into a sufficing faith the logical intellect its processes and conclusions will receive a respectful but distant salute while the irrational elements of life are accepted as its needful ingredients or even as a supreme source of its worth love which tramples on reason and in the great words of akempis warmly glows like a flame beyond all measure may be called in some sense the natural religion of the poet the mysterious love of man and woman in particular irrelevant to most of the problems of philosophy and regarded by religion chiefly as a dangerous disturbing force is one of the perennial springs of poetry and one of the shaping analogies of poetic thought and the same impassioned insight which gives significance to this love exalts also all those other energies of the soul which carry men out of and beyond themselves poetry is naturally heroic it has presided over the cult of the hero as religion and philosophy over those of the saint and the sage it has rewarded him with enchanting secular paradises elysian fields isles of the blessed and temples of fame poetry is disposed to magnify human nature the transition from aeschylus who painted men greater than they were to euripides who drew them after life is also a decline in the intrinsic temper of poetry 
if in that alone and because of its bent to think greatly of man it makes for the assertion in the great sense of freedom of man's freedom to be himself neither the shibboleths of political freedom nor those of free thought have always it is true found response among poets their part has rather been to keep alive in mankind the temper which treats outward obstacles not as the soul's constraints but as its opportunities the faith that iron bars do not make a cage and that you may be bounded in a nutshell and yet not only count yourself but be a king of infinite space in the interpretation of nature poetic experience works creatively or selectively on similar lines to those wonderful deposits of the imagination of the past the myths of extinct faiths from which theology and philosophy have long withdrawn their sanction or on which they have laid their taboo the poets have habitually been very tender and when they felt as poets the image drawn from a myth has never had merely decorative value or served merely as a poetic synonym for the exact term it expressed something in the poet's vision not otherwise to be put into words if the glorious anthropomorphism of olympus and asgard has faded for ever the mystery of life everywhere pulsing through nature and perpetually reborn in man and beast and earth and air and sea cries to the poet with a voice which will not be put by and the symbols by which he seeks to convey his sense of it if they read personality too definitely into the play of that elusive mystery yet capture something in it which escapes the reasoned formulas of science hence many great philosophic ideas about the universe which without ascribing life or mind to it might seem projected from our inner rather than gathered from our outer experience have powerfully appealed to poets the antitheses of the one and the many which fascinated and fertilized every phase of greek thought had one of its roots in the acute greek feeling for continuity through change which is equally manifest in the parthenon and in the pindaric ode and to a less degree in all art and poetry wherever the sense of rhythm is present at all when we feel the poetic thrill says santayana is it not that we find sweep in the concise and depth in the clear that felicitously expresses the genius of hellenic art in particular but it also marks off the specifically poetic apprehension of oneness as a something deeply interfused in and through the living multiplicity of the world alike from the mystic vision of a one whose splendour dissolves the reality of things and from the vision of peter bell for whom nothing but things exists yet even this pregnant oneness has commonly gathered in the poetic conception of the universe the higher and richer attribute of soul life it has become a living and working nature vitally implicated in every organ and filament or mind diffused through every limb or love or beauty or power woven through the woof of it or the splendour of god irradiating it through and through when we turn as is proposed in what follows from these general considerations to watch the actual operation of poetic apprehension in concrete examples we naturally encounter some serious difficulties poetic apprehension may be as distinct and definable as we will 
but it can rarely be caught acting in vacuo poets are men they are usually citizens they are often penetrated with some form of religious or philosophical faith it is inevitable in such cases that their strictly poetic experience should be coloured or even overridden by ideas proper to their possibly more habitual or more deeply established persuasions in poets like goethe and shelley deeply concerned with the issues of life outside poetry philosophic and poetic impulses and data may well seem inextricably mingled even blake and whitman who perhaps come nearer than any other moderns to shaping out a poetic world-view for themselves evidently worked as poets under a deep bias of revolutionary dogma which made them unjust to some aspects of poetry itself and with poet exponents of great theological or philosophical systems like lucretius or dante it may well appear idle to seek to catch the moment when the runnel of poetry carved out a watercourse of its own instead of falling into and moving along with the great tide of epicurean or catholic thought yet we attach some meaning to our words when we distinguish periods in which the poetic element in a poet's nature was more potent than at others when we say for instance that in shelley the poetic apprehension after eighteen twelve worked itself progressively free from an alien philosophy or that in wordsworth from about the same date it became progressively overlaid by a theology almost equally alien or that in dante's convito the poet of the vita nuova who will finally recover dominance in the commedia has yielded much ground to the scholastic thinker distinctions so clearly felt and sharply drawn cannot be groundless what is here proposed is to examine whether any typical character or direction can be discovered in the modifications which the data of religious or philosophical beliefs and ideals have undergone in certain commanding poet natures in that case we might possess some of the material for answering the question i have been bold enough to suggest in the title of this paper two i begin with examples in which these data are derived from religion and in the first place from religion still untouched by philosophic reflection without rashly assuming the solution of unsolved or insoluble problems one may venture to assert that the homeric epics owe their present form neither to purely religious awe nor merely to conscious and deliberate artistry but to a poetic apprehension of the world operating upon the data of the savage cults and rituals the animism totemism and magic which anthropology is gradually deciphering under the palimpsest of their obliterating splendour with some aspects of the process we are not here concerned if homer as many modern scholars suppose disliked human sacrifice and similar barbarities and tempered or effaced the record of them he reflects the growing efficacy of civilised but not necessarily of poetic ideas it is otherwise with the transformation whatever its precise nature and history which put the defined character and rich personal accent of the homeric olympus in place of the psychological fluidity and incoherence of primitive religion for the childhood of poetry the change possibly involved a loss a world where there are no barriers or none which magic cannot dissolve where gods and men and beasts pass over into one another without resistance or demur 
where everything can be done and had if the right formula be pronounced and the due charm applied such a world is the home and habitat of the fairy tale but its facile instability must be overcome before a mature poetry no less certainly than before a mature science can arise the homeric outlook upon the world had as a religion grave flaws which merited the strictures of later moralists but it had also as a religion magnificent qualities to which they rarely did justice his deathless figures permanently raised the status of man and the ideals of human achievement and every line of the poetry is instinct with an assurance of the glory of the world and the goodness of life and the nobility of heroic emprise and of reverence and of pity which justly made his book the bible of later greece yet it is plain that even homer reflects or finds reflection in but a limited tract of the greek mind that there were many deeper as well as darker currents in the greek way of apprehending the world of which that radiant mirror shows no trace humanity had triumphed over the superhuman as well as over the subhuman clarity over mystery as well as over confusion the ionian thinkers of the sixth century swept away the fables of olympus fastened on the problem of substance and proclaimed the sublime discovery that all is one the orphic cults and thracian orgies of dionysus betrayed the widespread and intimate hold which they won in greek life refined and humanized as they doubtless were that religion in greece too included the riot of intoxicated rapture as well as clear-eyed piety the bacchic frenzy which carries men beyond themselves as well as temperate self-reverence and self-control both these new elements enriched and uplifted if at some points they also impoverished and degraded greek mentality and the greek apprehension of the world religious philosophic and poetic alike the philosophic apprehension of unity reacted on religion and the two strains coalesced in the sublime theism of cleanthes hymn the dionysiac rapture reacted on philosophy without it should we have had the great doctrine proclaimed in the phaedrus of the divine vision one through madness and love and both reacted upon poetry above all on tragedy with its stringent ideal of unity maintained and manifested through all the phases and moods of conflict and the alliance disclosed in its very structure of apolline clarity and order with the lyric exaltation of dionysus but the matter of tragedy shows yet more evidently the larger and deeper world-view which poetry has now won in passing from homer to aeschylus we enter an atmosphere in which the gods are hardly ever visible but which is laden and tense with the sense of divine things his persons it was said are more than human certainly his gods are sometimes like the zeus of the prometheus less than divine but the aeschylian universe has outgrown olympus without having dispossessed it a soul of immense reach and depth apprehending life from many sides but always with a sense of vast issues and inexhaustible import here interprets the old stories of man's relations with the gods and leaves us with a new vision of the possibilities and responsibility of man his tragic conflicts call incommensurate forces into play and their apparent solution leaves yet larger problems unsolved the story of prometheus ended with his reconciliation to zeus 
and this doubtless expressed the poet's deliberate intention and design the modern world has remembered prometheus not for his final surrender or appeasement but as the asserter and embodiment of something in man which stands over against the gods he recognises and not only endures unflinchingly all that their utmost anger can inflict but arraigns them himself before a law of justice higher than their own aeschylus we know was a devoutly religious man and never dreamed of surrendering his reverence for the divine because of the crimes of the gods possibly as Wilamowitz has suggested he believed that divinity itself had passed through a youth full of foolish noise to become with ripening years a righteous god and father worthy at length of universal reverence reverence for such an erring divinity is hardly distinguishable from forgiveness in any case it foreshadows if it does not announce the clear recognition of human responsibility and that recognition is already dominant in the mature work of aeschylus the traditional superstitions which still entangled the greek mind the doctrine of an irresistible fate or of a divine jealousy attending human greatness dissolve under the scrutiny of his terrible insight man is free even in his crimes and the greater because he is free clytemnestra chooses and wills as freely as lady macbeth she is as little the helpless victim of the curse of atreus as the other of the witch's spell it needed a great poet thus to embrace in his vision of life things incompatible to common sense whether aeschylus is greater declares the penetrating interpreter to whom i have referred when he uplifts our hearts by the full tones of surrender to the divine or whether he thrills us with the terrible acts and sufferings of human free will every one must decide for himself from his own experience but let no one say that he understands the poet until he has known them both Wilamowitz or Estea. the poet's eye glancing from heaven to earth from earth to heaven overcomes the antinomies of theological dogma and herein lies one of the most signal services which poetic apprehension has rendered to thought and not least to religion to pass from aeschylus to dante is to watch operations of poetic intelligence in which only the environment the material and the instruments of expression are profoundly changed the words just quoted of the greek might apply without the alteration of a syllable to the florentine and if ever poet saw earth and heaven at once it was he but the theological world-view which he found was more authoritatively established more intellectual in its philosophical substance and more rich and beautiful in its human appeal the fresh fountain of religious feeling still abundantly flowing was fortified and entrenched within a vast structure of elaborated dogma for which councils and saints had supplied the architects and the masons and ancient philosophy the stones within this imposing edifice nevertheless dante with complete conviction found and made his home no one now questions the absoluteness of dante's catholic faith and we should seek in vain for any rebellious upsurging of the poet in him against the starkest of scholastic abstractions on the contrary his wonderful gift of style continually finds the material for poetry in the most seemingly arid regions sometimes the result is merely an astonishing tour de force but often we become aware that dante 
has not only invented but discovered and that many a dogma which has the air of being the mere husk of religion is in reality the imperfect stammering utterance through which religious passion sought to make itself articulate dante in short makes us feel in these constructions of the intellect the language of the soul to do this needed something more than devout belief it needed the imaginative intuition of a poet the poetry of dante was distinguished from that of his older contemporaries above all by being just this intense soul vision put into words i simply write down what love within dictates psychological veracity never fails him allegory in so many hands a tissue of personified abstractions becomes in his a living image of humanity symbolic meanings and applications interweave and encircle it but the core is real his vision is only on the surface a description necessarily speculative of the fortunes of souls after death its substance as he tells us is man of his free will choosing good or evil here the human denizens of his hell and purgatory and paradise have undergone no inner change they are the men he had known in their spiritual habits as they lived and their fate when dante is thinking most as a poet and least as a theologian is a continuation of their crucial actions that paolo and francesca are immersed in inquenchable flames satisfies the theological idea of retribution dante inflicts on them the more searching penalty of being for ever locked in the embrace of their illicit love and how often when he thinks he is devoutly following out to the last consequence the church's dogma of eternal punishment he is unconsciously testifying to the poet's sublime faith in the soul of man as stronger than death and hell who is he asked dante looking upon capaneo who seems not to heed the flame but lies fiercely unsubdued by the fiery vein or the yet greater picture of farinata defiantly erect where the rest grovel in agony as if he held hell in great disdain even the criminals whom the poet most abhors and thrusts into the very depths of the abyss even the traitors guilty of the death of caesar or of christ he allows still to show greatness of soul brutus champ to a bloody foam in the jaws of lucifer is still the stoic philosopher and though he writhes in agony utters not a word and how wonderfully in the great ulysses scene the poet takes the pen out of the hand of the theologian and forgetting the fraud for which the captor of troy is doing penance in hell compels us to listen entranced to his tale of that last voyage beyond the sunset of the old wanderer still insatiable of experience who had kindled his shrinking comrades by bidding them consider of what seed ye are sprung ye were not made to live like the brute beasts but to follow after virtue and knowledge strange words to issue from the quenchless flames of hell but dante goes beyond this for the sake of the heroism of cato he flatly violates the theological categories which condemned him to hell and makes him the guardian of purgatory footnote the case of trajan who for his justice was said to have been saved by the prayers of gregory is not quite parallel since there was here a theological tradition in his favour but at least dante seizes on and emphasises the tradition and not merely saves trajan 
but makes him the comrade of the glorious just kings in jupiter End of footnote. as for the rest of the virtuous heathen he cannot indeed transfer them from the hell to which the church has assigned them a hell much more ferocious than any of which they had dreamed to elysium but he does what he may and he provides for them within the precincts of hell an elysium of green lawns and running streams the one place in the inferno where there is light and air the theological ethic of sin is thus unconsciously crossed again and again by the poetic ethic for which good means greatness of soul moreover with a depth of spiritual insight strangely in contrast with the vulgar notion of punishment which dictated the theological hell dante has asserted even in this realm of iron necessity the freedom of man the inmates of hell are not convicts condemned and punished for sins long since repented of they are there of their own motion and by their own will and if there is no hope there it is not because god has no mercy but because they cannot repent the souls in purgatory are held there by no compulsion they desire nothing but to be purified of their sins and the moment they desire to mount to paradise that moment they are free it would be strange then had dante with all his sense of supreme cosmic forces not stood for the faith that man is yet the captain of his soul there he is at one with aeschylus and milton and the other great theological poets of the west man's freedom is a root idea of the comedy and not merely because its purpose was to show him in the exercise of free will determining his fate hereafter dante went much farther than this a devoted catholic and citizen and eager to welcome the authority both of church and state he was driven by the corruption of the one and the anarchy of the other to seek another way the way of spiritual self-help with the aid of philosophy and theology along which he is led by virgil and beatrice the great farewell words with which virgil leaves him in the earthly paradise i crown and mitre thee king and bishop over thyself express with thrilling power the individualist nay the revolutionary side of his thought he would not have been the great poet he was if it had been the only side dante's reverence for virgil and for beatrice is one of the very substance of his self-assertion he has crowned and mitred himself by taking them for his guides and the result is the great poetic cosmos eloquent beyond all the other masterpieces of the world of devout discipleship and yet instinct in every line with the ardour of a soul voyaging through strange seas of thought alone but the name of beatrice points to another aspect of dante's work on which the impress of the poet in him is yet more unmistakably set measured by the range and compass of thought and by the richness and delicacy of feeling which the term in his usage conveys dante is the first as he is the greatest of the poets of love his poetry recovers and renews or at the least suggests and recalls all the varieties of intellectual and emotional experience for which philosophy religion and romance had before his time found in love the final expression or the speaking symbol the cosmic love by which empedocles had first interpreted the universal phenomena which we still hardly less than anthropomorphically know as attraction 
the passion for another being in which the author of the phaedrus and the symposium discovered one of the sources of the divine exaltation which emancipates men from their human limits and endows them with the vision of reality the love of god for man and of man for god proclaimed as the very core of christianity in the fourth gospel these three types of love all denoted for dante by amor amore were conjoined in his experience with a fourth distinct from all though nearly allied to the second the romantic love of woman which had been the chief inspiration of the poetry of provence and which however sublimated and spiritualized is enshrined in the vita nova to say that dante's mind equally powerful in analysis and in synthesis confounds these distinctions would be unjust but it would be equally untrue to assert that their associations are never blended christian philosophy had itself absorbed the first cosmic attraction then reappeared in a sublime apotheosis as the love which draws all the universe towards god and by which god as its source moves the sun and the other stars and if dante in his treatise on poetry distinguishes himself from the poets of love as a poet of morals or righteousness he also as we saw ascribes his whole power as a poet to his writing what love dictated in his heart man in virtue of his freedom has power to misuse love and dante everywhere scornfully contrasts the higher and the baser love nay all sin which can be purged away he regards as due to love wrongly used the whole population of purgatory is there because it loved unwisely or loved indifferent things too well or right things too little but the harm here for dante arises not from love but from the application to it of the evil material in man's nature as a foul impress may be set upon the most precious wax something of the idealising atmosphere which christianity and plato had thrown about love thus always colours it in dante's mind but it is also subtly touched with that other idealising force which not christianity but the poets had recognised which christian ethics had contemptuously tolerated or scornfully tabooed dante had known the love of woman in many forms longing for the absent wife and child had consumed his flesh and his bones in exile and his virginal adoration of beatrice sprang from no coldness of the blood the power of womanhood to lift men to supreme heights of vision and fortitude which he had divined through beatrice and sung in the great canzone of the vita nuova no more passed out of his faith than did her image from his memory if the comedy is a great scheme of salvation it is also a great song of womanhood such as he said no man ever sang before and if we say that beatrice is there a symbol for theology that is doubtless true but a thousand phrases remind us how much she symbolises besides and the look in the eyes of beatrice which draws dante upward through the circling spheres of paradise to the beatific vision attests also his faith in the power of the lover's adoration to lift a man out of his humanity and make him joyful even in the flames thus dante though he counted himself not among the poets of love but among the poets of righteousness 
is one of the inspiring sources of the modern poetry which invests the love of man and woman with the ideal attribute which philosophy and religion had proclaimed in other forms of love but had ignored or repudiated in this in spencer platonist christian and lover at once the fusion of the three strains is complete his great hymns to love who is lord of all the world by right and ruleth all things by his powerful saw prelude his even greater hymn of marriage even chaucer perhaps learnt from dante that amazed awe with which in the opening lines of one of his earliest italianate poems he contemplates the wonderful working of love the petrarchists and sonneteers went far to reduce the expression of this love to hollow phrase-making but with romanticism it found fresh and original utterance and its status in the world has never been more loftily affirmed than by celtic romanticising poets of to-day i say that eros is a being declares one of the finest spirits among them it is more than a power of the soul though it is that also it has a universal life of its own a e imaginations and reveries three the power of personality and the glory of love these have emerged from our discussion thus far as the things in life whose appeal to poetic intelligence was most potent in modifying the substance or changing the perspective of a world-view derived from religion we have now to examine in a fashion unavoidably even more fragmentary and summary the reaction of another series of poetic minds upon the more complex and abstruse world-views of philosophy it is necessary for the purpose to adopt a rough grouping of philosophic systems and i take the following division into three fundamental types based with qualifications upon one proposed by wilhelm dilthey in the essay already referred to to the first belong the naturalistic schools from democritus to hobbes and the encyclopedists deriving their philosophical conceptions directly or indirectly from an analysis of the physical world and commonly disdaining or ignoring phenomena not to be so explained to the second type of thinkers the objective world is still the absorbing subject of contemplation but it is approached not from the side of physics but from the side of self-conscious mind it is felt not as material for causal investigation but as responsive to the human spirit now as living nature now as immanent god now as a progressively evolving absolute here with various qualifications we may class heraclitus the stoics spinoza leibniz hegel in the third type the focus of interest and the determining source of philosophic ideas is the self-conscious mind itself it feels profoundly its own energy and power of self-determination and it regards the objective world not as deeply at one with it responsive to its feeling accessible to its thought but rather as a threatening power against which it must vindicate its spiritual freedom and build its secure spiritual home in the philosophies of this type personality which the first type ignored and the second reduced to an organ of a world process became the fundamental condition of our experience as with kant and fichte or a transcendent personal god shaping the universe to his mind 
as with the Plato of the Timaeus. If we now consider these three types in relation to our problem, it seems evident that the second and the third are naturally more congenial to poetry than the first. Yet we know that one of the greatest of Roman poets made it the work of his life to expound the atomic naturalism of Epicurus to an unreceptive Roman world. The De Rerum Natura was not, like the Essay on Man, the attempt of a consummate writer to clothe in elegant dress philosophic ideas which he only half understood and which he abandoned in alarm when they threatened to be dangerous. Lucretius was the poet, but also the prophet of Epicureanism, and it is among the prophets of the faiths by which men live and die that we must seek a parallel to the passionate earnestness with which he proclaims to Memmius the saving gospel of Epicurus. To that same Memmius, who a few years later showed his piety to Epicurus's memory by destroying his house. But Lucretius felt and thought also as a poet, and in the temper of poetry, he was not lending his pen to a good cause, nor turning Greek science into Latin hexameters in order that it might be more vividly grasped or more readily remembered. He was conquering a new way in poetry, as his master, according to his pious faith, had done in thought, striking out a virgin path which no foot before his had trod, as Epicurus had soared beyond the flaming walls of the world in the lonely and victorious quest for truth. And he calls on the muses for aid, with as devout a faith in his poetic mission as Milton had when he summoned Urania or some greater muse to be his guide, while he essayed things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. The atomic system of Democritus, which Epicurus adopted as his account of the world, was a magnificent contribution to physical science, and the fertility of its essential idea is still unexhausted. The problems of mind and life, of ethic and religion and art, it touched only in so far as it resolved mind and all its activities into functions of matter and motion, death into disintegration of elements, and divine agency into an idle dream. But these negations were precisely what commended the doctrine to Epicurus. A saintly recluse, bent only upon showing mankind how to live a life of serene and cheerful virtue, he took over the doctrine of the great physicist of Abdera as that which promised most effectual relief from disturbing superstitions. He might have gone to the great Athenian idealists of the previous century, the immortal masters not only of those who know, but of those who think and labour and create, whether in science or in poetry or in citizenship. But his aim was precisely to liberate from these distracting energies, and allure a weary generation from the forum and the workshop, even the studio of letters or of art, the strenuous laboratories of science, and the temples of the gods, into the choice seclusion of his garden, the garden of a secular monasticism, secure from fear, and fragrant with innocent and beautiful things. Such a secular monasticism has charms for the modern spirit, in some of its phases, too, and Monsieur Anatole France has described a latter-day Epicurean garden, even more securely barred than the old, from the fever and the fret of thought. What Epicurus added of his own to Democritus's theory was an accommodation 
not to truth but to convenience and the measure of his scientific ardour is given by his easy toleration of conflicting explanations of the same phenomenon provided they did not call in the intervention of the gods while the measure of his attachment to poetry is given by his counsel to his disciples to go past it with stopped ears as by the siren's deadly song it was of this enemy of disturbing emotion this quietest of paganism this timid and debonair humanitarian that his roman disciple drew the magnificent and astonishing portrait which opens the dererum natura the lucretian epicurus is another prometheus the greek who when mankind lay prostrate before the horrible apparition of religion first of mortals dared to face and withstand her no legendary terror quelled him nor thunder nor the menacing roar of heaven they did but kindle the more the eager courage of his soul to be the first to break the bars of nature's gates so the living might of his genius prevailed and he passed beyond the far flaming walls of the world and traversed in mind and spirit the immeasurable universe returning thence in triumph to tell us what can and what cannot come into being having trampled under foot religion who once crushed mankind and lifted mankind in turn by his victory up to the height of heaven one might well surmise that a philosophy which a poet could thus ardently proclaim was itself after all not without some of the seeds or springs of poetry and that lucretius in choosing to expound it in verse was not staking everything on his power of making good by brilliant surface decoration or eloquent digressions radical defects of substance no doubt there are passages enough in his poem where poetic substance and decorative surface seem equally wanting but perhaps we yield too implicitly to the spell of homer and of aristotle or it may be to that of lessing or mommsen if with the last named we declare lucretius's choice of subjects a blunder footnote goethe to speak only of german critics was of another opinion his own choice of subjects in poems like the metamorphose der pflanzen was closely analogous and he recognised with high appreciation lucretius's extraordinary gifts cognates with his own of intuition and schaung and imagination enabling him to describe with power and to explore beyond the reach of the senses the mysterious recesses of nature in other words gifts which found peculiar scope in dealing with the subject which lucretius actually chose End of footnote. rather we can discern under much scholastic obstruction and irrelevance the outlines of a colossal epic of the universe of which the protagonist is man and wanting neither in the heroic exaltations nor in the tragic dooms neither in the melancholy over what passes nor in the triumph over what endures which go to the making of the greatest epic and these qualities had one of their roots in the atomic theory of democritus itself at first sight so unpromising for poetry for his theory was in effect and probably in intention a device for overcoming that dilemma on the horns of which early greek thought found itself so desperately impaled the antithesis of the one and the many the eleatics had declared that pure being was alone real denying change and motion heraclitus declared 
that nothing was real but change, and the only perpetuity flux. His rival, Democritus, showed that it was possible to hold change and permanence to be equally real, by supposing the world of the senses, where all things die and are born, to be composed of uncreated and indestructible elements. Underlying the ceaseless fluctuations of nature and life as we see them, lay a continuity of eternal substance, of which they were the passing modes, one of the greatest of philosophical conceptions, as Santayana has called it, but also one appealing profoundly to the specifically poetic intuition which I have described. Whether the permanent, apprehended through the flux of sense, be a spiritual substance like Plato's ideas, or Shelley's white radiance of eternity, or whether it be the constant form and function of the flowing river, as in Wordsworth's last Dudden sonnet, or whether, as here, it be a background of material particles perpetually combining and resolved, we have the kind of intuition which gives the thrill of poetry. We discover sweep in the concise and depth in the clear. Infinite perspectives open out in the moment and in the point, and, however remote as yet the temper and conclusions of Spinoza and mysticism may be, we yet in some sort see things in the light of eternity. In Lucretius this conception found a mind capable of being ravished by its imaginative grandeur, as well as of pursuing it indefatigably through the thorniest mazes of mechanical proof. The contagious fervour which breathes through his poem is not the mere ardour of the disciple bent on winning a convert, nor the joy of the literary craftsman as his hexameters leap forth, glowing on the anvil. It is the sacred passion of one who has had a sublime vision of life and nature, and who bears about the radiance of it into all the work to which he has set his hand. It is not because of anything that Lucretius adds to Epicurus. In explicit doctrine he really adds nothing at all, that the impression produced by his poem differs so greatly from that of all we know, in fragments and second-hand it is true, of Epicurus's own writings. The ultimate principles are the same, but the accent is laid at different points. The parochial timidities of Epicurus have left their traces on the Roman's page, but they appear as hardly more than rudimentary survivals among the native inspirations of a man of heroic metal and valour, and Roman tenacity, and force of will. He is not able quite to break free even from speculative foibles, which show the master's shallow opportunism at its worst. He repeats the dictum that the sun is about as large as it looks, a lamp hung a little above the earth and daily lighted and put out, but he becomes himself when he lets his imagination soar into the infinities of time and space, which his faith opens out or leaves room for. It is a triumph of poetry as well as of common sense, when he scoffs at the stoic dogma of a space which abruptly comes to an end, when he stations an archer at the supposed terminus, and ironically bids him shoot his arrow into the hypothetical nothingness beyond, or, in more sombre mood, how grave an intensity he puts into a common thought, like that of the end of life, by the sublimely terrible epithet, immortal, which he applies to death. Mortalem vitam mors, cum immortalis ademit, or into a mere reminder that birth and death are always with us, by making us hear the continuous succession, through the ages, 
of funeral laments and wailings of the newly born he accepts without question the swerving of the atoms devised by epicurus child and man of genius at once to refute the stoic dogma of necessity but what possesses his mind and imagination is not these intrusions of caprice but the great continuities and uniformities of existence which follow from the perpetual dissolution and remaking of life rains die when father ether has tumbled them into the lap of mother earth but then goodly crops spring up and trees laden with fruit and by them we and the beasts are fed and glad towns teem with children and the woods ring with the song of young birds only as such passages show lucretius grasps these uniformities and continuities not as theoretic abstractions but as underlying conditions of the teeming multiplicity and joyous profusion of living nature his senses imagination and philosophic intellect all phenomenally acute and alert wrought intimately together and he enters into and exposes the life of the individual thing with an intensity of insight and a realistic precision and power which burn its image upon our brain without ever relaxing our consciousness that it is yet part of an endless process and the incidental expression of law none the less his conception of the nature of the process itself does insensibly undergo a change the hidden flaw in his system could not but with an exponent so richly endowed and so transparently sincere at some point disturb its imposing coherence atomism could not explain life and life poured with too abounding a tide through the heart and brain of lucretius not to undermine in some degree the authority of his mechanical calculus and to lend a surreptitious persuasiveness to analogies derived from the animated soul without ostensibly disturbing the integrity of his epicurean creed such analogies have in two ways infused an alien colour into his poetry and alien implications into his thought in the first place he feels as abounding nature's will that life the mere living is somehow very good in spite of all the evils it brings in its train and death pathetic in spite of all the evils from which it sets us free when he is demonstrating that the world cannot have been made by gods he sets forth its grave flaws of structure and arrangement with merciless trenchancy tanta stat praedita culpa and like lear he makes the newborn child wail because he has come into a world where so many griefs await him and no one has ever urged with more passionate eloquence that it is unreasonable to fear to die none the less phrases charged with a different feeling about life continually escape him to begin to live is to rise up into the divine borders of light and secondly despite his philosophical assurance incessantly repeated that birth and death are merely different aspects of the same continuous mechanical process and that nothing receives life except by the death of something else he cannot suppress the suggestion that the creative energy of the world is akin to that which with conscious will and desire brings forth the successive generations of man and so in the astonishing and magnificent opening address to venus the poet who is about to demonstrate that the gods lived eternally remote from the life of men calls upon the legendary mother of his own race 
as the divine power ever at work in this teeming universe the giver of increase bringing all things to birth from the simplest corn-blade to the might and glory of the roman empire so grave and impressive an appeal cannot be treated as mere rhetorical ornament if we call it figure it is figure of the kind which is not a poetical substitute for exact description but conveys something for which no other terms are adequate the great symbol of venus rendered his vehement apprehension of the life of nature with more veracity than that calculus of atomic movements which he was about to expound and by which his logical intellect with perfect sincerity believed it to be explained far less astonishing than his bold rehabilitation of the goddess of love is his fetishistic feeling for the earth the legendary mother of men for him too as for primeval myth she is the universal mother who in her fresh youth brought forth flower and tree and bird and beast from whose body sprang at length the race of man itself nay he tells us how the infants crept forth from wombs rooted in the soil and how wherever this happened earth yielded naturally through her pores a liquor most like to milk even as nowadays every woman when she has borne is filled with sweet milk because all that current of nutriment streams toward the breast but if lucretius in such passages goes even beyond the most implicit modern attribution of personality to nature his feeling is at another point sharply marked off from that of wordsworth for instance or meredith his earth is veritably mother but she is not benign she has brought forth the teeming life which possesses her but she does not love her children nor mould their forms by silent sympathy nor nourish their manhood from her well of strength for the earth is not only our mother she is our tomb and the eternal energy of creation is not only matched by the eternal energy of dissolution but here and now is actually yielding ground to it the earth so prolific in her joyous youth is now like a woman who has ceased to bear worn out by length of days in the whole universe birth and death absolutely balance the equation of mechanical value is never infringed the universe has no history only a continuous substitution of terms but each living thing has a history it knows the exaltation of onset and the melancholy of decline nor is its fear of death cancelled by the knowledge that in that very moment and in consequence of that fact some other living thing will be born and lucretius feeling for our earth as a living thing and one very near to us and deeply involved in all the issues of our existence does not suggest that some other earth elsewhere is now on the threshold of being she has for him a history and the joy and pathos of history and he forgets that she is a mechanical term to say that he puts the nevermore of romantic sentimentality in the place of the dispassionate give-and-take of mechanics would do wrong to the immense virility which animates every line of this athlete among poets of the cheap melancholy of discontent he knows as little as of the cheap satisfaction of complacency or of that literary melancholy where the sigh of horace or ronsard or herrick over the passing of roses and all other beautiful things covers a sly diplomatic appeal to the human rosebud 
to be gathered while still there is time no the melancholy of lucretius is like that of durer's melancholia the sadness of strong intellect and far-reaching vision as it contemplates the setting of the sun of time and the ebbing of the tides of mortality or like wordsworth's mournful music of dissolution only to be heard by an ear emancipated from vulgar joys and fears or like the melancholy of keats the veiled goddess who hath her shrine in the very temple of delight the amare aliquid in lucretius's own yet more pregnant words which lurks in the very sweetness of the flower end of lecture three part one